Hey, pull up a chair. It's Hacks on Tap with David Axelrod, Robert Gibbs, and Mike Murphy. Hey, good morning, Hackaroos, or I guess I should say good evening. It's morning for us, evening for you, and we put the show up. I'm here with the great Robert Z. Gibbs and a very special guest, because as we know, there is one hell of an important election uh, afoot in the great Commonwealth of Virginia. The nation's eyes are turned there. It's really close. So we wanted to ask the one who knows, get the best Virginia expert we possibly could, and we did. Dr. Gibbs, who would that be? We have, we're lucky to have... Former Congressman Tom Davis join us today. Let me give you a little background on him. He spent 14 years representing Northern Virginia in Congress. Uh, he was the NRCC's uh, campaign chair uh, for two cycles uh, and so led the fight in, uh, for to add seats for Republicans in Congress. And You can't has, even say that, Gibbs. I, You're such know, a partisan. It, you you, it hard, you trip hard over to, the words. It's hard to spit out. But I will say, uh, credit where credit is due, he was the NRCC chair uh, one of only a few times, I think three times in history, where the president's party picked up seats in 2002. So uh, joining us is uh, former Congressman Tom Davis. Guys, it's great to be with you, and you missed the most important part of my uh, biography, and that is I left Congress undefeated and unindicted. <laughs> Boy, well, they're, they're going to have to name a building after you, increasingly rare club. Oh, <laughs> uh, that's great. Tom, thank you for joining us today. So I guess we should start. We we want to talk congressional strategy, uh, what's going on with the budget, why Speaker Pelosi is buying, et cetera, and now by the forklift load. But I think we should start with the, the race in Virginia. Polls say it's really close, maybe a point or two or three lead, you know, within the margin of error for former Governor Terry McCall who's going for a comeback against Republican venture capitalist uh, Young Kin. What, you start. What do you think's going on? What do you think the key things to watch here uh, as the race winds up? Well, I think first you have to start with Virginia's history, and that is uh, since 1977, really the time Virginia started to become a two-party state, with only one exception, uh, have we elected a governor that is the same party as the president. We tend to be counter-cyclical uh, in, in that regard. The only exception was when McAuliffe won uh, eight years ago, but he ran against Ken Cuccinelli in a very fractured Republican Party with some major Republican defections. You had a Republican-led government shutdown in October. He was outspent two to one uh, down the stretch, and there was a libertarian candidate on the ballot that took 160,000 votes, predominantly uh, from uh, Cuccinelli. This time, the dynamic is a little different. Uh, the spending is the, sa- is the same, at least. Youngkin, as you know, has put at least $20 million of his own uh, money into this race. Uh, you have a united Republican Party, uh, what's left of it. Um, you have uh, Biden in the White House, whose numbers are tumbling. Uh, and you have an independent Liberation Party candidate, an African-American LGBT woman, uh, whose brother was shot and killed by the Richmond police, who will probably take votes from uh, McAuliffe. So, the, the dynamic, uh, that, that's the history of this thing. So Republicans walking into this thing have kind of the best atmospherics you could hope for. And the issue is, as the state becomes so blue of the demographic changes and the coalitional changes within the parties uh, make it achievable for Republicans who haven't won a statewide election since 2009. Wow. Congressman, let's let's get a little bit into the numbers, because I, I was looking at some some numbers from past elections the other day in Virginia uh, and, and it looked, you know, obviously probably the last time um, Republicans did this well in a statewide race was a, a, the near-death experience that Senator Mark Warner had in, in 2014. Right. And, and I looked and it was interesting. And you represented this area in Congress uh, for uh, for those 14 years. You know, you, you look at the, then Republican nominee um, Ed Gillespie. You know, he does well in Fairfax and Loudoun and Prince William. And when I mean well, uh, in Fairfax, he's getting 40% of the vote versus 28% that Trump got. Um, you know, he actually he, he actually won Loudoun County. Um, what what does Glenn Youngkin have to do in those areas this time to make this race as com- – or what's he doing to make it as competitive? And what does he have to do to win two weeks from today? So, Robert, Virginia is not really a two-party state. In many ways, it's two one-party states. Uh, 
the Republicans are rolling up the margins in these rural areas, getting over 80 percent in, in counties uh, in southwest Virginia, uh, in, in that whole, you know, the white part of the state, white rural part of the state, rolling up numbers better than Gillespie ever got. Um, so they're going to overperform there. Trump has overperformed there. Their problem has been as they move into the urban areas and the suburban areas, anywhere with density, uh, greater Richmond, northern Virginia, and Tidewater. Um, but Democrats have been performing well in these areas, in my judgment, um, because they don't like they haven't liked Republicans. They haven't liked what Republicans have had to offer. As these elections tilt to cultural and social issues, uh, that uh, as the Republican base has migrated from the country club to the country, uh, there has been a little bit of a standoffishness on the part of suburbanites who've been voting Democratic. Youngkin's the opposite. He's a Harvard Business School graduate. He has a voca- uh, you know a, a, an adult vocabulary. And I think uh, after with Biden in the White House and they're seeing some of the issues uh, that you have anytime you have to govern and have to make tough decisions, that uh, some of that is going to snap back for Republicans in the suburban areas. He doesn't need to, to carry them. But I think their rural base stays very solid. Uh, Youngkin was smart, for example. He, he didn't uh, get the NRA endorsement. He didn't ask for it. But McAuliffe gets up there saying, I got an F from the NRA. I'm proud of it. All you got to do is pay, play that ad in rural Virginia. It's better than an endorsement. Um, so it's um, Northern Virginia also, you got to remember, it's more secular. It's more multi-ethnic. Uh, people there make a lot of money. Um, and, and Republicans have basically uh, given the finger to a lot of immigrant groups. They start, they're starting to come back at this point. Um, Youngkin is running some, some very good ads. That the Asian black um, standoff has come over Thomas Jefferson High School and some education issues. And Democrats are having trouble holding that coalition together. Republicans also have a rainbow ticket. They have a Hispanic for lieutenant governor, I mean, attorney general, and they have an African-American uh, or say a Jamaican-American running for um, lieutenant governor, more of a rainbow ticket than the Democrats. So all of that kind of breaks up the Democratic coalition, which I describe as part ideological, part progressive and part um, identity politics. They're breaking into that identity politics piece at this point. And that's what's that's why Youngkin's going to do, I think, better than Gillespie in the suburbs and better in the rural areas. Which would be a good recipe to win. So to reinforce that, because I think you're dead on correct. Of course, you know, I used to vote in Virginia. Now I live 3,000 miles away, so I have opinions but no knowledge. But I did get an interesting email today sent to me and probably 100,000 other of his close personal friends from Terry McAuliffe. And the the log line to get me to click open, because it was a machine-generated fundraising email, is, are we blowing this? And so that that does pose an interesting question. Now, unfortunately for Terry, I I didn't click the donate button, uh, nor nor did I intend to. But that that does frame it well because I think Young King is doing a very good job of kind of teaching the Republican Party how to survive in the world of Trump without chaining your identity to Trump. He is, as you said well, he is non-scary to the suburbs where Trump has decimated the Republican Party, which is freeing, it is my guess, suburban voters to go back to, as you said, semi-normal, which is cast an economic protest vote against Biden and the progressives and Democratic Party, uh, see certain cultural affinity with him. I mean, the McAuliffe campaign has been trying to paint him as you know, a complete right-wing, knuckle-dragging, Trump-loving maniac. But if you listen to the guy talk for 10 seconds, it doesn't stick. And I, I think back to my question, are we blowing this? I do think McAuliffe has not really found a message that works either about Young King or about why he deserves a comeback. Am I wrong about that? Or has it just been kind of, for somebody who's such a political animal, it seems to me like McCall's kind of been off his game and just hasn't gotten a handle on his opponent or a particularly good rationale for himself outside of trying to make it a referendum on Donald Trump. Yeah, I think that's accurate. I think Terry has switched messages too many times as you've gone through the last month trying to find something that sticks. Um, They had a Trump rally the other night. Trump appeared, uh, you know, on the screen. He didn't show up. Uh, Youngkin was 150 miles away um, and repudiated the thing because they saluted some flag that was at the Capitol on January 6th. So Mm. they have ads, they have signs up in Florida basically uh, saying, uh, asking Trump to come into Virginia. Um, why, you know, why aren't you in Virginia, et cetera, trying to goad him? 
they're running a, an election on the past, and elections like this are about the future. Terry represents the past. Um, and mm -hmm. so I think the formula that has worked for the Democrats with Trump in the White House, and, and even before that, uh, are not working this time. You know, coalitions change at this point. It's a tired coalition. And what I see is a lot of their base voters, uh, minority voters, young voters, are just not energized and are asleep. And that creates a turnout issue for Democrats. Plus, you have uh, somebody on the left that's going to take a couple, at least a couple percent out of McCall's side. And that's a recipe to make this a very, very close race. So the candidate on the left, the, the African-American protest candidate, has any of the old Virginia operatives, Boyd Marcus, been cited around around that campaign? Do you think that's organic yeah. or do you think it had a little help in the in the tradition of uh, of cynical Southern politics? What's your theory on that one? My theory is it's probably more organic than anything else. Unfortunately, I, if it were me, you know, I'd be putting some money behind it. But, yeah, uh, hell yeah. I think it's more organic. Yeah, I think it's a more organic. We may see some movement in the last couple of weeks. I'm not privy to that, and no one would admit it anyway. But right, I suspect right. you'll see some targeted uh, going into that. That uh, but Look, they've had to bring Obama in. They had to bring Stacey Abrams in. They have to fire up their base. The early voting is not going as it has gone for them before. Uh, look, the polling on this, this, the public polling is a little more pro-McAuliffe than the private polling. But when it's this close and two weeks to go, really anything can happen. You also have the state house up. Democrats have a 55-45 lead in the state house, but a switch of 5,200 votes would have given the House to the Republicans the last time. And then you have the down ticket races. And, and my theory of this is they're likely to all go together. It's somebody sweeps yeah. that has a clean sweep. Uh, the only other thing I would distinguish from the Mark Warner race is that Senate races and House races now are more parliamentary in nature. Governor's races have a little bit different rhythm. This is why you get a Hogan in Maryland and you get a Baker in Massachusetts. You have a Democratic governor in, in Kansas. Um, and the dynamic of the state at this point, I think Democrats have overread their mandate. And um, so I think there's a little bit of a pushback there that also helps the Republicans. And I, look, I totally agree with a lot of what you just said, uh, Congressman. Are you... I mean, are you a little surprised, though, given, uh, you know, the last time we checked in on election results in in Virginia, uh, Joe Biden is winning uh, is winning the state by 10 points. Now, again, I, I get that it's against Donald Trump and tr Trump and uh, the suburbs in Virginia don't mix very well. But are you a little surprised that this quickly um, Republicans in Virginia have been able to put aside some of their differences um, but also find a candidate that, to your point earlier, can still run up the margins that you need to in the really red rural parts of the state and and appeal to the suburbs. I think Democrats probably thought that was going to be a bridge too far for Republicans. Yeah, I mean, we'll find out. Look, we'll know more November 3rd in terms of does all this work, right? What I think is happening at this point is is Democrats are just more complacent. They got rid of Donald Trump. That was their motivating force. Yeah. And Republicans who like Trump are angry about Biden. They're just they're just angry or angry people tend to vote. Uh, and so there is more energy. There's no question there's more energy on the Republican side than the Democratic side. Every every poll has shown that. And I think independent voters who, who voted um, for Biden just because they didn't want Donald Trump in their living room for four more years. Um, I, I think they're going to pump the brakes. I think Biden is giving them something they didn't bargain for. They thought, OK, we stopped Trump. He's going to govern from the center. And you can see the push he's getting from the left. Um, his rhetoric is fine. But activity wise, I think it makes some of them a little uncomfortable. And so if this is what traditionally happens in Virginia politics. I think they pump the brakes. And I, and I think those same dynamics are at work uh, going into the midterms. Yeah. If Republicans carry Virginia this this year. I think it will send shockwaves into suburban Democrats right now who are faced with, like, are they going to vote for the reconciliation package, et cetera? And the smart ones are going to look for some separation. I think if Youngkin wins, and I wouldn't really dive to bet, but if I had to bet, I w that's the way I would bet. There's a good lesson for Republicans, which is the Trump tribal base will vote Republican 
uh, and accept a candidate who's not totally pure by their meter on tribal basis to go punish Biden and beat Democrats and all that stuff. Well, you can edge into that suburban world. So th- this is a race that could be very important for the Republicans. But, Congressman, you just did a great segue into our our, our next big topic. What the hell is going on in the House? I uh, Before we get there, let us let, let me ask one question as a segue Oh, my beautiful that. transition. It was a work of art. And now, yeah, but well, go ahead. I think I go may ahead. have an even better one for you. All um, right, fire away. So, Congressman, you know, there's been a lot of discussion. Uh, Mark Warner said yesterday we need to vote on the transportation, uh, the bipartisan infrastructure bill, ASAP. There's you know, McAuliffe, every time somebody puts a microphone in front of him, wants Congress to come to a conclusion on both reconciliation and, and the infrastructure bill. What do you, How much do you think what's happening on Capitol Hill is impacting the race? And do you think... And I don't think it's going to happen. But do you think if if there was an infrastructure vote before this election, would it change the dynamic in, in Virginia? I think this had Biden had they been able to agree to that bipartisan infrastructure bill that's got 69 votes in the Senate. I think it would have put Biden as he's governing from the center. You know, he's bringing Republicans on board. The fact that the House has held this up in in favor of a larger a bill that has a different uh, definition of infrastructure, uh, I think it hurts uh, in that regard. Um, and it takes uh, that patina of, that uh, Biden had around him of being a bipartisan deal maker, and just throws it because Biden has thrown his lot in. We're, we're going to do these things together. Um, I don't know how you fit a size 12 foot into a size 8 shoe, which is what they've got to do that before this before this election. Um, but we'll see. Uh, I think it's it's a it's a tough fit. Republicans had the Freedom Caucus. It really brought them down, showed they were incapable of governing uh, Democrats uh, with a much slimmer majority. It's very difficult to try to put something together at this point. And, I, and a Republican victory in Virginia, I think, is going to send shockwaves to wide awake suburban members saying, wait a minute, do I want this to be a parliamentary race or do I need to start personalizing my district and show some independence? Well, look, I've made this point to to, to Murphy and others on, on this podcast and in a newsletter that we have, Hacks on Tap newsletter um, that we have. I, I think regardless of the outcome uh, of, of this race, it should send shockwaves through the Democratic Party because unless Terry McAuliffe pulls off a 10-point win – You've seen a real erosion in the political environment in a year. Uh, and, and look, I was in the White House in 2009. I, I get what what the race can mean psychologically for Democrats uh, in in the Commonwealth. I, I think it's again a, a little bit of a warning system because you had a couple of, and I know we're gonna, we'll get into some redistricting, but you know we we had there's two Democratic members in essentially swing districts in Virginia that narrowly won in. 2020, even as Joe Biden is winning by 10 points. If you've got a plus two or three Virginia for Democrats, that's a wipeout of those members of Congress. So I think there's a shockwave. You know, there's look, there's a flashing red light really regardless uh, of, I think, the outcome here. now. Yeah, there's no good news dying to pounce. Close loss uh, by Young King or a win. E- either way, the Republicans are going to claim victory. If they get a win, the, the media is going to follow along. It'll be part of a narrative of Biden problems from Kabul to his House caucus in revolt. He has to put on a mile cap to pass his own agenda. It, it, it's a mess. So I have a slightly contrarian view. You know, a week ago, Speaker Pelosi was saying, yeah, we got to get it done. Save Virginia. Well, one, as as Tom says, putting the size 10 shoe, a size 12. 10 foot into the size uh, size, tw- size size 3 trillion shoe <laughs> in, into the size. You need a hatchet, and it's painful, and it will take right. a long time. So I don't think they could make the deadline. Right now, I tell them not to, because the worst thing is they pass something in in a, in a bloodletting the Sunday before Virginia, and they still lose Virginia. I don't think it would save it, and then your yeah. big thing goes down the vortex. So I think it will become the restart plan. Uh, and but you're right about those moderates. This is well, you're looking at a time tunnel of things to come in the House unless big stuff happens, which it could. We know politics is that way. All right, hold that thought. We're going to take a short break, and now a word from our sponsors. You know, Robert, I'm a little worried about our podcasting partner, Axelrod. He seems to have a new addiction. (laughs) Uh Uh-oh. 
Is it uh, is it oatmeal on his tie? Is it uh, is it donuts? W- what's the new addiction? Well, they're all alive and well, and you know, also he has a, an insane, passionate love for losing Chicago sports team. But this one is even worse. You you say the magic word I'm about to say, or the phrase, and his eyes light up. It's unbelievable. He starts to you know breathe hard, twitches a little, but he's happy. It's a love affair, and you know what it's with? What's that? The Helix Mattress. We kid you not. When we do these ads, we're so happy to have these great sponsors come aboard on Hacks on Tap. And the products tend to, well, as we used to say in Detroit, fall off the truck for us. They, they give us a sample. And he was the first one of the trio here to get the Helix Mattress. And he loves this thing. It's unbelievable. It's like talking to somebody who's had a religious experience. This is now the official, beloved David Axelrod Mattress. And I'll tell you why. It's all about Helix Sleep's special quiz that takes just two minutes to complete and matches your body type and sleep preferences to the perfect mattress for you. So you get something dialed in to your needs. Axe is on to something. Why would you buy a mattress made for somebody else? With Helix, you're getting a mattress that you know will be perfect for the way you sleep. Everybody's unique, and Helix knows that. So they have several different mattress models to choose from. They have soft, medium, and firm mattresses. Mattresses great for cooling you down if you sleep hot. I don't even want to know if that's what Axe has. Uh, mattresses great for spinal alignment to prevent morning aches and pains, and even a Helix Plus mattress for plus-size sleepers. I'd love to make a joke about Axe there, but we love yeah, it too we're, much. Yeah, we're to leave him alone. I'd probably need one too. I took the Helix quiz, and I was matched with a firm mattress because I've got a couple of minor back problems, and I need the extra support. Anyway, listeners, if you're looking for a mattress, do this. Take two minutes and take the quiz. You order the mattress that you're matched to. The mattress comes right to your door and is shipped for free. You don't ever need to go to a mattress store and put up with all that rigmarole ever again. Yeah, Helix is awesome, but you don't need to take our word for it or Axis. Helix is awarded the number one best overall mattress pick of 2020 by GQ and Wired Magazine. I know how much you follow GQ. Helix (laughs) has been recommended by multiple leading chiropractors and doctors of sleep medicine as a go-to solution for improving sleep. Just go to helixsleep.com slash hacks. Take their two-minute sleep quiz, and they'll match you to a customized mattress that will give you the best sleep of your life. Plus, you get a 10-year warranty, and you get to try it out for 100 nights risk-free. They're even pick it up and take it from you if you don't love it, but you will. You know how much Axe love his mattress? It's going to be voting in Cook County elections now for the next 20 years. So check it out. Helix even has financing options and flexible payment plans. Now get this special offer for our hackaroos. Helix is offering up to $200 off all mattress orders and two free pillows for our listeners right there at helixsleep.com slash hacks. So you get the guarantee, the 100 nights to try it out, and 200 bucks off. How can you beat that? That's right, helixsleep.com slash hacks for the best sleep of your life. Tom, let's make you speaker for a minute. You've got the inevitable task. You're the Democratic speaker, and you've got to figure out, what do I salvage? Do I try to – what's the smart political move? Do I try to make what will be smaller, thanks to Mansion and Cinema, about one big popular thing, or do I cut everything by a third? What do you think her strategy ought to be, uh, and, and how much could she use a little more help from the president? Because to me – it looks like he's kind of vanished from the debate, which is really bad for his brand, as you said. Mr. Washington can do, knows how to do it. Um, I think they've got to bust some big moves after Virginia uh, to get the narrative back. What, what, would, what would your best legislative strategic advice be to her? Yeah. Well, Robert, unlike Obama, who was a gifted orator, Joe Biden gives a fireside chat and the fire goes out. I mean, he's, he's, just, <laughs> he's, he's not inspiring. He was the right – look, he was the right persona to unite the Democrats and beat Trump. Uh, he, he, he fulfilled that. Um, after that, I think it's a, a, a more of an empty vessel. The smart move for them would be to take that Senate bill with 69 votes. Biden go to the caucus and said, give me this. We'll get the rest later. Give me this now. I need this victory now. We yeah. need this victory in Virginia now. We need to move this along. And then we're going to wrestle. We're, we're going to get the rest or as much of the rest as we can. But we need a win now. and We need to get together now. He didn't do that. 
He said, no, I, I want them to go together. And I think that was a big mistake. Do you think they could have found the votes? Because uh, that's what the moderates wanted. It's by far the smarter political move. I think passing the infrastructure thing would have given him momentum to help him battle his way through the less popular spending stuff. But uh, I think the read they took at the White House was they weren't going to get there. The progressives were going were gonna to block him. So the only route for Biden was to join the parade instead of being dragged behind it. Do you, do you buy that? I'm surprised they didn't put up more of a fight because it's such a – clear win to get infrastructure done first, but they really cave quickly. Yeah, I mean, it's it's hard to know what happens inside these caucuses, because I saw the Freedom Caucus just run havoc on, on yeah. the Republicans. You know, you get to the line of scrimmage and you got three different people call, calling the play, and, and it doesn't work that way. Uh, but I, I, you're asking me the smart move would be for the president to get up there and say, give me this, we're going to get the yeah. rest later, but I, I need this now, let's get a win. Also, starting off on a bipartisan uh, basis, I think, enhances Biden's image as a leader for everybody, as opposed to going the partisan route. This could be the best bill in history, but if it's a party line vote, you're going to have two different worlds viewed this two different ways. Uh, And that's, you know, you'd like to be able to get spokesmen on all sides saying this is what's needed. This is a good thing. That's so true. People forget what a big deal that infrastructure bill was in the current climate to get that many votes in the Senate. Yet it's it's kind of just due to progressive uh, resistance. It's, it's sort of just laying out there dying when it's such an opportunity. Well, I think, Murphy, I mean, I think the challenge has been that there's a lot of I mean, I think there's a lot of Democratic distrust right within within the caucus. Right. I, I, I don't I, I think it is easy to say, hey, let's take the 69 vote Senate bill. Let's do that. Let's assure everybody it's going to happen. I don't think in all honesty, a lot of the members of the progressive caucus think that a mansion would be there for an additional bill. I, I think they think and they have thought for a while that the only way to do <clears throat> one step is to do two steps, which is complicated. And I, I look, I agree with you, Congressman. Nobody elected Joe Biden because of his speechifying. Uh, and I think he would even be the first one to to admit that. I, I think the question will be to watch this week. You know, we, we know we know that um, there's a lot of meetings going on behind the scenes. There's a lot of meetings even today at the White House to sort of get this thing, uh, you know, to to bring this ship into to the port, uh, if you will, to use an infrastructure analogy. Uh, because I, I think time is uh, ticking. I think it has less to do with Virginia. It has more to do with meta politics, the political environment in 2022. And I, I think you'll see... I think you know Biden's going to Scranton this week. He's doing a town hall meeting on Thursday on this. I think there's a real messaging challenge that has to be overcome as well because while things are popular in this bill, there's just not a lot of awareness around what's in it because all the arguments and debates have been about the top line numbers. So I think it's a hugely important week for the president to establish the things that did help him get elected, right, which is that he can, you know, bring folks together, even if it's in this case, the Democratic caucus, to try to get this thing over uh, over the finish line. Certainly Pelosi and Biden have have talked in the last couple of weeks about the fact that it is time for this debate to close and for the legislating uh, to, to really take over in earnest. Yeah, but remember, there's hesitancy in the House to get what we call BTU, you know, where you end up voting yes. for something, it doesn't become law. Absolutely. Secondly, people don't tune in the news, as you know, to get information. Now, people are tuning in to get affirmation. So in a party line vote, you're going to have two different narratives over what this bill uh, does. Uh, and a bipartisan bill is a little different. A bipartisan bill, you know, people are going to look, we're working together. A one party, even a, even a perfect bill out of that, people are going, you know, there, there's a lot of, I know this is going to shock you. But there are a lot of untruths that go on in this world and exaggerations and stuff. And people tune no. in. Wait, what? And read this stuff. Yeah, a bipartisan <laughs> vote basically takes the edge off that stuff and say, no, this is okay. A one-party vote does not. And, and of course, finally, we don't even know what's going to be in the bill. <laughs> so I understand the concept. It, it's going to be, it's, it's tough to do. Yeah, but, but look, they should take that early bill. You just asked me what they should do. They right. should take that first bill. And then go back and get whatever else you can get. But at least you've got a bipartisan bill uh, under your belt. And, um, you know, every day that gets delayed, he's lost that. Yeah, it's just it's so important for the country to do that, to show it can be done before everybody forgets. The problem, the I know why the progressives and I understand why they're frustrated with Joe Manchin. 
But he is a fact of life. It's also a fact of life that Virginia is a Republican state. So the fact that they have a senator who will vote West Democratic. Virginia. You oh, said excuse Virginia. Me. Yes. Oh, yeah. No, no. Don't mean Hold to insult. The, it's early here in L.A. First of all, it's a commonwealth, not a it's state. A, I, so you... I used to vote there, my friend, <laughs> uh, with pride in good Republican government. But the point being, the progressives decided to take this big win rare, wonderful infrastructure bill and use it as a weapon to beat on Manchin because they're mad he's only a 70 at best percent Democrat. But that, you know, so then everybody loses. Um, but Congressman, let, let me try another pivot here. The Republican Party that you and I both both labored in that vineyard for a long time, uh, I think the Democrats are giving us a good share of political opportunities here. The question is, you know, are we going to go a, a young kin direction with more suburban-friendly candidates and try to repair the damage, win the House big, et cetera? Or are we going to go, you know, in the in the ne- pure neo-Trumpy populist uh, direction and scare the suburbs back away? How do you how do you think that's going to play out? You know, conventional wisdom is Trump's going to run again. He's going to win. Um, the world will end, et cetera, et cetera. I'm not so sure. I think he's more likely to run now than he was before because he senses weakness on Biden. But we both know what a lot of pragmatic R's say publicly about Trump and privately are very different things. You, you, you're a student of the party uh, and a real strategist. What, what, you know, get out your crystal ball and talk about how you see it going forward. Well, look, I think whatever happens, Republicans are likely to take the House for any number of reasons yeah. in, in the midterm. Part of it is the fact that Democrats have a very narrow margin. They're going through a redistricting cycle um, that, if anything, gives a slight edge to Republicans, uh, et cetera, et cetera, you know, history. Um, but Republicans shouldn't read this as a mandate. <laughs> They're just simply the opposition. People would rather put a check on the president than giving him a blank check. Uh, and that's traditionally what happens in these Mm-hmm. Uh, but what you're seeing is it's not a national party. This will play out in uh, 435 congressional districts. It plays out in 50 states. Uh, and it's not all Trump all the time in these states. Look at Yunkin, who won a Republican nomination in a convention against two people that were yeah. trying to out-Trump each other. Um, and so, look, I think that this is a chapter that still has to be written. I saw Bill Crystal, who has just left the party. And I said, Bill, if if you don't like Trump and you want to keep him from nominating, you should stick with it. You shouldn't walk away from it. Now you've done Biden and now you've done McAuliffe and you've you've lost any credibility to come back and repair things. Um, But this is going to be repeated across the country. And we'll just have to see how it shakes out. Um, The president is still very, very popular with the with the base. Should he go again? He's got a ton of money. He will be very formidable. Um, But two years is a long time. And um, we'll just have to see how it plays out. But I don't think that chapter is written yet. Time to pay the meter, but we will be right back. Now, let's hear from our sponsor. Murphy, have you ever browsed in incognito mode? No comment. (laughs) It's probably not as incognito as you think. Sorry to be the bearer of bad news there. And why would it be incognito mode like the Chrome browser itself is? A Google product, and Google has made its fortune by tracking your movements online. There's, I got to say, my movements are pretty boring. You know, it's Vito's Pizza, my favorite Chinese dive, Hughes, and then to the office or the airport or home. There you go. Or taking my daughter to the park. There's even a $5 billion class action suit against the company in California where it's accused of secretly collecting user data. Google's defense, incognito, does not mean invisible. Did you get that, everybody? So how do you actually make yourself as invisible as possible online? You use ExpressVPN like we do. Yeah, because in incognito mode, your online security still gets tracked and data brokers still get to buy and sell your data. One of these data points is your IP address. Data harvesters, oh, that's bad. Use your IP to uniquely identify you and your location. But with ExpressVPN, your connection gets rerouted through an encrypted server and your IP address is masked. I actually use ExpressVPN to watch foreign Netflix 
So the Netflix cops are probably going to come to my house. But Netflix will think through their encrypted server based in the U.K., you pick any country, that I'm in the U.K. and I can watch European television that way uh, and all kinds of cool stuff we can't get here. So these VPNs are pretty neat, and ExpressVPN is an excellent one. Now, on the security side, every time you connect to ExpressVPN, you get a random IP address scrambling that uh, information and getting the data harvesters nothing to harvest. Their data combines run dry. So the whole thing makes it harder for third parties to identify you or, as I said, to harvest your data. Best of all, ExpressVPN is super easy to use. No matter what device you've got, a phone, a laptop, or a smart TV, all you have to do is tap one button and you're instantly protected. So if you really want to go incognito and protect your privacy, secure yourself with the number one rated VPN. Visit expressvpn.com slash hacks on tap and get three extra months for free. That's E X P R E S S V P N.com slash hacks on tap. Go to expressvpn.com slash hacks on tap to learn more. Take that data harvesters. Congressman, I apologize in advance. Murphy promoted you to Speaker of the House and asked you a question. I'm going to move you back to just being NRCC chair. So I apologize for okay. the slight demotion <laughs> as I uh, as I ask my question. <laughs> Again, these are the kind of nasty partisan politics that Robert yeah, exactly right always right. There's nothing probably. Uh, yeah, I could have done a lot worse. Putting on your <laughs> NRCC hat, how do you go out? Given the wake that Donald Trump creates in the political party, and and I think in, to some degree, Youngkin is is a slight slightly bit insulated from it, right? He's got his own funding mechanism, right? It's not he's not right. looking for the the base to answer uh, an email like McAuliffe sent to uh, unwittingly sent to Murphy this morning. So he's a little bit insulated, and so I guess my question is. How, as the NRCC chair, are you in some of these particularly swing districts where where Republicans are going to need to do well in 2022? How how yeah. would you prosecute it? How do you look for candidates that you think can be in places that they need to be a little bit more insulated from a Donald Trump when, gosh, it seems like every twist and turn Candidates, even that you don't really expect, are aligning with Trump because they just have a fear of not being aligned with him. And just quickly for the listeners, NRCC is the National Republican Congressional Committee. It is the extremely important campaign committee for the House Republicans, just like the GCCC is the Democratic one. Uh, But go ahead, Congressman. Yeah. Well, first of all, as you know, um, one of the unintended consequences of McCain-Feingold is, A, the growth of super PACs on the right and the left that have come in are our enforcement mechanisms and primaries, which have moved the Republicans right and the Democrats left. But the other thing, which everybody thought would be good, is more money is being raised online than mm-hmm. ever before. But the only re- way you raise money online is with some ideological pitch, right? I mean, Trump has right, raised yep. a ton of money online. Um, the NRCC is raising more money than any time in history online, basically off Biden and using Trump. And they've got Trump speaking at their dinner. But that doesn't play in a lot of these marginal districts that they have got to win. You've got to be able to try to handle uh, former President Trump. May have him understand that he's just uh, he's not adored everywhere uh, in this country. Uh, he basically is the reason we lost this to Georgia Senate race. It's because he went down and talked about himself instead of getting the vote out. And in, in my opinion, uh, right. I think McConnell would, ag- would agree with me. Um, so you've got to be able to handle them and, and – uh, so you have to continue to, to talk to him and his people. But secondly, you've just got to find outstanding candidates in these other uh, in, in these other suburban races. And they're doing a pretty good job of that at this point. Remember this. People no longer vote the person. They vote the party. We've got less ticket splitting than at any time in history. Uh, yep. We have basically devolved into parliamentary behavior and a balance of power structure. And it just doesn't work very well. And I think an NRCC chairman, if you put enough money behind a monkey, you can make him into King Kong in this environment. 
Uh, and I would argue I can name a few districts where they've done exactly that. Maybe not, not King Kong, but member of Congress Kong. By the way, to those emails you talk about in the democratization of fundraising, I couldn't agree more. You know, in the old days, uh, and you'll remember this, to get elected and raise money, first you had to go, I don't care if you're a Republican or Democrat, you'd meet small groups of fairly responsible people. You know, local business people, people who represent important economic interests, local labor union. You kind of have to clear that hurdle by not, you know, talking to your hat and being crazy. But in this Internet fundraising world, there's no filter like that of responsible stakeholders. You go right to the people and the hotter the uh, tamale, the better you could do. Like, I'll just read you some copies since we made so much fun of his uh, email from Terry McAuliffe. It basically, we're in a tie. My Trump-endorsed opponent is, you know, spending a lot of money. And then get this. This is like the lead of the email to Democratic voters. Youngkin's a GOP extremist. He was caught on video pledging to defund Planned Parenthood. He opposes Medicaid expansion. His anti-LGBTQ+, anti-woman, and pro-guns. His political mentor, Ted Cruz. And he's been endorsed by Donald Trump, all capitals, six times. So the truth is, Trump had to bust his way into the race because the Yunkin people smartly didn't invite him. And then, as you said earlier, it headed 150 miles in the other direction. But in the world of fundraising direct mail, I get stuff from the NRCC that is one click away from endorsing the January 6th insurrection. It is crazy. I know. And it's, it's so corrosive to our democracy. As you say, it becomes just two tribes with no swing voters. Well, it's also not very strategic. If you look at the people yeah. that have raised the most money, um, you know, AOC's opponent had no shot of beating or raised a ton of money online. Why? Because he was running against AOC. The same against Pelosi's opponent. They're raising right. more money than, than committee chairman. I mean, it, it's bizarre, but that is the world of online fundraising. You know, the next place where this is playing out is in what I think the most interesting Senate race is going to be, and we'll probably be back talking about that uh, fairly soon, which is the open seat. Our friend Pat Toomey is retiring from Pennsylvania. It could hold the key to control. And you've got a big Democratic primary, of which the two strongest candidates are Connor Lamb, who is the kind of Democrat who could do well statewide, And I believe it's John Fetterman, the lieutenant governor, who's kind of an interesting character with the Bernie agenda. And he is now less likely, depending on who we nominate, if we, you know, let's try to get Charlie Dent to run. But uh, Fetterman is blasting the doors off fundraising with this kind of stuff. But in a general election, the old seize the means of production thing is not uh, not so palatable. So this does it's like steroids for general election unelectable people because the incentives in the primary are to to do exactly that, to make yourself unpalatable. And it's it's just a new feature of American politics. It's not good. And and just to add to that, Connor Lamb, if he were not, by the way, Connor Lamb is out of central casting. I mean, he would agree with that in terms of ex-Marine as as a candidate. Yeah, uh, Ivy League guy. Uh, But the the person he defeated for Congress last time narrowly may be the Republican candidate for the Senate. So we may get a rematch on a statewide basis. Oh, boy. Pennsylvania is a critical state. Yeah. Let's play a little bit forward here. Do you where do you see or who do you see leading House Republicans after the 2022 midterms, I know I'm asking you. To, Murphy wanted you to look in the crystal ball. I'm 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 asking you to get into a time machine because this is uh, um, a seven lifetimes in politics. But do do you think um, do, how challenging is it going to be for Kevin McCarthy post election if Republicans win to become Speaker of the House? I mean, generally, when you lead people into the promised land, they reward you, and so that would be the conventional wisdom. Let me name three other names just that are potential speakers, if not now, maybe down the road. But if Kevin is, was able to lead the Republicans into the promised land, you would think there would be some reward for that. Um, but also keep an eye on, and I'm not just saying for 2022, we never know where this, but Mike Johnson, uh, Mike Johnson mm-hmm. from Louisiana, I think is a, as a leader in a, and, and very strong uh, elements of the caucus like him. Uh, his Louisiana colleague, uh, uh, Steve Scalise, people yep. still remember he's carrying a bullet around him from being shot there and is the whip. Um, I, I think also somebody and then Patrick McHenry, uh, who was the deputy whip and is now the chief, chief Republican on financial. All of these have, I think, uh, within the caucus, wide, wide support. But my gut would be uh, that McCarthy, barring some scandal or something like that, that if they take the House back, they're going to reward him and make him speaker. 
Yeah, that's probably right. I, I hear a lot of the same talk, at least from the Republicans left who will talk to me. Um, but, you know, I what I feel building, I'd be curious what you think, is the Democrats have screwed up enough, particularly if we win Virginia and there's a real heady sense of everything's going Republicans' way, that there, Kevin now has expectations. Winning by two seats is not a win anymore. Uh, so that, you know, the question is, will, will he win but fall a little short, which could open up the opportunity for the Johnsons and the McHenrys and, and the Scalises. So that if I were the McCarthy, I'd be a little worried because now, oh, I got to deliver a 12 seat win. Wait a minute. No, I think that's something to that. And I'll just go back to 1998, where we were promised a 15 seat pickup and, and we lost a number of seats. And that was the end of Gingrich. Remember, Bob Livingston yeah. took him on. Gets out, and then Livingston had his own set of problems, and we end up with the cleanest guy we could, who was scandal free, and that was Denny Hastert. <laughs> I mean, what do you know? <laughs> yeah, right? Politics uh, and irony go hand yeah, in hand. Yeah, I was going to say irony alert. All right, let's take a minute to hear from one of our esteemed sponsors. You know, Gibbsy facts can be hard to find nowadays, except, of course, on Hacks on Tap. But especially when you're looking to buy car or home insurance. I mean, I can't tell you how many times I go on the Internet to search for something like this, and I get all these fake review sites. ReviewUSA.com. This is the greatest insurance by our team of, and it's all a scam. It's hard to find the objective knowledge of what really you want out of a policy and what you're going to pay for it with facts, not sales hype. Well, that's where the zebra comes in. Tell the good people about our great sponsor here. With the zebra, you can compare car and home quotes from every major insurance company in under five minutes, giving you all the facts you need to make the right decision. It's the fastest way, Murphy to find the right coverage at the right price and will help you find a provider that you can trust. In fact, the Zebra saves people an average of $922 a year on home and auto combined. Plus they're totally independent. Their only agenda is finding the right policy for you, Murphy. Sounds like you can just cut out all that Googling and go straight to the Zebra. What do you need to do to save time and money in minutes? Compare quotes for free, 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 free at thezebra.com slash hacks. That's thezebra.com slash hacks. Let me just talk midterm real quick. Uh, you got four factors are, are that the, the president's party loses seats in the midterm. Factor number one is not present, and that is generally when um, presidents get elected, they bring people in on their coattails. In the midterm, their coattails aren't there, and they get swept out. Biden had no coattails. So that, that fate factor, that, that favors Democrats. You don't have a lot of Democrats got elected because, they, uh, because you know, Biden brought them in. But the other three factors favor the Republicans. Number one is the party in power generally gets a little more complacent. Uh, they've won. In this case, Democrats beat Trump, mission accomplished. Number two, the out party gets angrier because they don't like what the in party is doing. And we're seeing that in Virginia. I think we're going to see that across the country, um, that, that the Republican base is going to be uh, a more intense than Democratic base. And the third factor that's not talked about is there are a group of people, maybe 10 percent of the voters that don't like either party. And they tend to put that check on the president rather than giving a blank check. They want to pump the brakes. And I think we're going to you know, those are the factors in midterm elections. The last four times, one party's controlled the House, the Senate, and the presidency, uh, 1994, 2006, 2010, uh, 2018. Uh, they have uh, lost the House generally by a larger margin than anticipated. That's history. Right. Yeah, those, those patterns are pretty clear. So one, one, well, two more crystal ball things quickly, and then we'll get on to the mailbag. The uh, House conference on the Democratic side, the, there was a lot of talk that Speaker Pelosi, after a long career, would pass the Biden agenda and then retire. Well, she might eventually pass the Biden agenda, depending on how the progressives react to the mansion haircut that seems to get tougher every week. Uh, do you think she will retire? Do you think she'll run for an term as Speaker? Do you think she'll have real opposition if they lose the House? Which I think she probably will. But what, what's your take? Yeah, I'm not privy. She lost the House once before. But remember this, and Robert, you'll appreciate that. She, she, she got Obamacare through, right? She got the Affordable yeah. Care Act through and Dodd-Frank. These were, uh, they're, they're not uh, votes I would have taken. But uh, for the Democratic base and for transforming the country, huge success. It, it cost her the House, 
But, you know, there's nothing wrong with losing if you're doing it for the right reasons. In, in this case, that's what Democrats thought. So I think her legacy is still pretty good. I, I would suspect she does not run again. Maybe gets a nice plum ambassadorship or something like that. Um, but who knows? I'm not privy to those discussions. I do think there's a restiveness in the House among a lot of progressives that are going to want uh, somebody else uh, just because it's time. Yeah, I'm I'm starting an exploratory committee for mayor of Baltimore for her to complete the circle. But well, let, let me just weigh in on this a little yeah. bit, Murphy. I, look, I I agree absolutely with what you just said, Congressman. I, I think people remember um, what she did to get Obamacare over the line in 2010, and just for you know, as as we sort of hand ring around, gosh, how come Biden hasn't gotten this done? As I've said a lot of times. We didn't sign health care reform into law until March of 2010. So I know it is frustrating, particularly if you're watching this as a Democrat. Um, th- this is nothing compared to what health care was. She was Herculean <laughs> in that effort. She was Herculean in that effort. And uh, look, I, 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 there's always restiveness, I think. But I, I will say this. I, I don't envision – I don't know what she's going to do. My hunch is like we've – you all have said, I do think she retires, but I think if she decides to stay, I don't think anybody else has a grip on that caucus like she does. Well, we, we're going to find out as this, this battle unfolds. You may be right. Last question before the mailbag. Who's on your radar screen as just interesting or potentially formidable at this early, early stage of the Republican presidential scuffle? Obviously, the big question, does Trump run, does he not? But there are a whole lot of kind of, you know, uh, candidates in waiting, so to speak, as usual in these things. And the after the midterms, the invisible primary is off to a big start. What uh, any, Anybody kind of pinging your radar screen? Like mine would be Dan Crenshaw, even though House members have a hard time in presidential races. He would have a Texas base, which is worth something, depending on, you know, if a, a statewide Texas politician ran even, even a cruise again. But and anybody pinging your radar that we're not hearing about that are worth watching? Well, I always like Ben Sass. I, I like yeah, Ben Sass too. because Sass is a solid conservative, very smart guy. He's got a PhD from Yale, but he, he's a very smart, principled guy. Uh, and it, you know, somebody like that might be able to unite the elite. He showed enough independence. It's hard to brand him as Donald Trump Jr. Um, as you walk through, I think he's a very he's young. He's a very very appealing uh, candidate. Uh, you know, clearly you've got Nikki Haley that is out there. She did an event for Youngkin uh, last night. She adds, uh, you know, a little bit of diversity at this point at a time where if Republicans can crack that uh, identity politics that the Democrats have and stuff like that, that breaks their coalition up. Um, so there, there are any number in Florida. You got four candidates theoretically, right? It's you got true. Rubio, yeah. Got Scott. You got the governor. You got Trump. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I watch for Trump to turn on the governor. He's doing just well enough to get on the radar as a problem. But I agree. And in some well, ways, right. he's the early, early semi non-Trump front runner just because of the size and scope of that office and the fact he, he knows his way around primaries. I don't know if he knows his way around general elections, but but yeah, I agree. There, Florida is the center. Let me push back a little bit on on both of you two here for one second. I mean, walk me through a scenario in in which a Ben Sass can become the Republican Party's nominee. We don't want to spill our plan ahead of time, Robert, to the Democrats. But uh, <laughs> no, no, he's very impressive. He, he, he could link evangelicals who quietly have been very disappointed with Trump's crimes and what I would call reform conservatives. You know, but look, Nebraska base. Or, uh, he has great suburban appeal. He, he would have great suburban appeal. Yeah, yeah, suburban, exactly, in a general. But it's hard. I get the point. I get that yeah. Trump's sitting on 44% of the primary vote as of today, and everybody else is sitting on 8 to 0, and you'd have to get down to one-on-one with Trump, which is very hard to do, as we found out in 16. By the time you've done that, he's got a lock on the nomination. But let me note two things. Iowa is next door to Nebraska, number one. So, you, you know, you, you, you walk across the, the, the bridge there, and you're, you're in Iowa. Uh, he has some organizational ability. It, you make an early impact. These things, you get some momentum going. Funny things can happen in this business. So I have no idea if Ben's that's even thinking about. I just think he would be a very attractive candidate. Uh, you've, you've got Cotton. You've got any number of other senators that aspire to this. The problem is Trump is going to be sitting there with a lion's share of the vote. And how do you break that up? 
the last time, I mean, the Democrats saw Sanders being able to win that way, and they got behind Biden to stop him. Republicans all felt Trump would fade, and he didn't. And uh, so, we'll, you know, it's, it's a long way to play out, but someone will emerge as an alternative. Yeah, and if you look at who's interesting, Sass is interesting. Nikki Haley is is interesting. You know, I'm not a huge fan because, you know, I've dealt with her a lot, but she's interesting. And then, of course, you got the powerhouse people, which would be if somebody could become the Texan or the Florida person other than Trump or, or close to, then they all get in play. And the question is, if you beat Trump in the Iowa caucus or wound him and win in New Hampshire, which would be the easiest place to beat him, you know, what happens when you head south in the Republican Party against Donald Trump? Probably hard. I mean, it's yeah. a long shot, but it, there's enough. I'm with Tom. There's enough unknown, known unknowns now that you can't just write it off. And I, that's a comfort bubble for Democrats. Well, we're a disaster. We've got Kamala Harris or whoever primaries are. But thank God Trump's going to walk to the nomination again so we can still win. I would not think that way if I were the Democrats. I would be ready for a more challenging deal. I don't think the only way, the only person that can win the Republican nomination is Donald Trump. Um, but I think if it's not Donald Trump, then it is that it, it's largely because Trump didn't win and somebody's impersonating Donald Trump. I mean, look, look what Ron DeSantis and Greg Abbott are trying to 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 do, um, you know, to 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 burnish their credentials and to to be like Trump. I, I don't I don't think there's I just think that the the likelihood of a twenty twenty four 2024 Republican nominee is going to be much, much, much likelier to be in the mold of Donald Trump than they are to be in the mold of somebody who strikes uh, an independent streak as as part of Robert. Yeah, you may be right. I just the only thing I can say is two years is a long is is, is two eternities. Undoubtedly. Undoubtedly. So lastly, we're going to get into the mailbag. But I want to I think I think this is not going to be a really hard question. Both of you are betting on Yunkin for the gubernatorial race. Is that right? You both think he's going to win? I wouldn't bet my house, but if I had to bet, I'd take him. Yeah, I'd put a hundred bucks on it. Gibbs, you got a hundred bucks because I'll match him. So you you put two hundred dollars in action here. I will put some money on it, though. I I think Murphy's house is worth more than a hundred bucks if if Murphy wants to to put that up. Well, give the socialist government of California another 10 years and you'll be picking it up for 99. Okay, I think it's time for the mailbag. It's listener mailbag. All right, if you have a question, send them to us. If you sent one before we haven't read because we didn't get to it, send another one. We want to hear from you. Hacksontap at gmail.com. Just email us at hacksontap at gmail.com. And if you want to get our cool newsletter, which has a lot of tidbits and other stuff you don't get here on the podcast from Gibbs and I, it's totally free. That's right. Costs you nothing. It comes by email twice a week. All you got to do is go to hacksontap.bulletin.com. Hacksontap.bulletin.com. Right, Gibbs? That's it, Murphy. That's the tip. Okay, question number one for Tom from Gail. What do you think of the effort of Miles Taylor and former New Jersey Governor Christine Todd Whitman to urge anti-Trump Republicans to vote a straight Democratic ticket in an effort to squelch Trump and extreme Trumpists from their hold on the Republican Party? Well, first of all, I think squelching people like Yunkin, which are the future of the party, is just a stupid idea. So you're basically knocking out these new sprouts that are coming up that are going in a different direction and not giving them a chance to go anywhere. Secondly, these folks, if they want to change the party, they need to stay with the party. Look, there are a lot of Republicans through time I might not have supported, but I don't go out there and endorse the other side because you have to they're going to expect some modicum of stability and loyalty with this. And I think they're cutting off their nose to spite their face. I think it's the wrong direction. And I'll just say this about the Lincoln Project and my Steve Schmidt, who used to work for me. I have a high regard for Steve. But when you go after Susan Collins, I mean, what is this about at this point? You're as bad as Trump when you do that. It's about money, I think. But that is a great point. Yeah, I think that's right. Okay, Gibbsy, this question comes from across the pond from Matthew, a British lad slash hack. Oh, a double honorific. Matthew wow. wants to know, you've mentioned previously that the Democrats must pass these infrastructure bills prior to the midterms. But to what extent do they need these bills to not only be passed before the campaigns are in full flow, 
but also to enable voters, especially independents, to see and feel the effects of the spending plan. So how important are these bills to the midterm elections? First of all, I'm glad uh, that we are getting international questions, Murphy, that we're, uh, we're, it's basically hacks worldwide, right? Yeah, we've gone global. Look out. <laughs> so it's a great question. Look, I, I do think there's obviously this has got to pass before the midterms because I'm not entirely sure we're going to control anything after the midterms uh, in the House, at least. Uh, secondly, I don't think, though, that you're I don't think that you're going to see, even in the best scenarios, a lot of impact over the next 12 months in a lot of these programs, save except extending a couple of things that are already in effect. Right. Which is. If the bill includes um, uh, a a permanent uh, subsidy for um, for quality health insurance, something that in the Recovery Act is already goes through 2022, and possibly um, the child tax credit, um, which has pulled a lot of kids and families out of poverty, some of that you could see. I don't think though that you are structuring this vote and these programs honestly, to see a lot of impact before 2022. It will take a while for that to, to, to be felt, whether they're tax policies uh, or other programs, they'll take a little time to get set up. Look, I, I don't know that it's going to be a 10-year arc like Obamacare, uh, but it will take a while for these things, um, for working families to feel these things. Uh, and that's just the nature of how to get these things set up. I do think it is tremendously important that the messaging of this kick off very, very, very soon. Yeah, that's what I was going to chime in with. The most important thing is people know what the hell they are, which right now they don't. I've got a question for you from Wesley, who asks, given how unreliable polls have been lately, do you question the accuracy of polls coming out of Virginia? And if so, how are you determining viability? Well, that is a good question, uh, Wesley. And I would say 95 out of 100 cases within 3%, I would be fairly skeptical. I would be fairly skeptical of the exactness of these polls. See, polls work because they measure a random sample that reflects the electorate. And the problem polling has now is a lot of people won't take the polls, so you don't get a true sample of the electorate. Pollsters try to get around this by using what they call multimodal polling, which is they call some people on landlines, some people on their cell phones, if that's how they like to respond. Some people get a text, you click, and then you go online. So that's how they try to get as representative a sample of the electorate as possible for the 800 or or so questionnaires they need filled out, and then they weight it statistically. So polling is trickier now. That said, the other thing polling can't really tell you is turnout. It can look at past patterns, but every election is different. Generally, an off-year election like this has lower minority participation and because most minorities vote democratic lower democratic numbers so if you want to put any english on these polls give the republican a point but remember the margin of error is a couple points on each number so if the virginia polls are two or three points all that tells you is too close to call which is where i think the race is and generally for a guy like mcauliffe who is even though it's an open seat kind of the incumbent because he's been governor if the challenger closes to two almost there in the polling, which could, again, statistically be there, I bet on the challenger. Murphy, because you answered that question so well, we are going to give you, hold on for it, a bonus question. Uh, Oh, my goodness. I I, I hope you're ready. Uh, This comes from Carolyn, who asks, Murphy, because you're a big fan of the one and only Gina Raimondo... Oh, I'm excited. What is it? I wonder if you have any character insights for an artist in the running for a coveted commission to paint her official governor's portrait. Oh, wow. Well, congratulations, Carolyn. Well, being Rhode Island, I would suggest you put five crisp $100 bills in the application because that's been known to work uh, in in the great state there. I kid. I kid. I kid. But I wanted to make uh, the ghost of Buddy Cianci uh, laugh a couple of times. Uh, You can look him up. Famous Rhode Island politician. Well, unfortunately, or maybe fortunately, because anybody who listens to Hacks on Tap has to have tremendous talent. So I'm hoping you win the thing hands down. Um, You know, uh, Gina runs a good process there. No favoritism. So if you got the best application, I think um, I think you may do it. But but quickly, I'm going to be a time hog here. I'll give you one piece of advice that may work or may not. 
in the governor's office in California, there's a thing called the horseshoe, which is a long, uh, like square missing one side, so three sided hallway where a lot of offices uh, are off of. And they have this long row of the governor's portraits. Like about, it feels like 50 of them. It's probably like 25. And they're all, you know, some guy with walrus mustache holding a railroad spike and some, some grapes or something, except for one. There's this crazy modern art photo, and you can look it up on Google, Jerry Brown's portrait. It looks different than the rest. It's kind of a Picasso-esque thing of weird angles and vibrant colors. And when they bring every day the school trips through, the only portrait the kids are interested in and stop and ask about is Jerry Brown's portrait. I, uh, I once talked to Governor Brown about that, and he always told me, you know, it pays to be a little different. So I would uh, know everybody else is doing the obvious portrait. If, if you have a hip, interesting style that's a little more abstract, maybe bet on that because I think Gina's probably hip enough to get it. Anyway, people can uh, Google Governor Portrait Jer- Edmund Jerry Brown and see what I'm talking about. Congressman, look, thanks for joining us. We learned a lot. I think our listeners learned a lot about the future of, of where you see the Republican Party heading and a lot of Virginia history. So thanks again for joining us. Uh, we, we think hack is a great compliment, and uh, we think you're, uh, you're a great hack to have joined us. Couldn't agree more. And if you were running the NRCC right now, I'd put my money on Republicans by 12 seats. Thanks a lot for joining us, Tom. Thanks a lot. So, Robert, before we wrap up, uh, we should probably say a word of appreciation uh, for the late General Colin Powell, who was a pioneer in, in many ways, a great patriot, served our country well for a long and distinguished career. A lot of people think he would have made a great president. I, I think he liked being, knew his strength was as an advisor and an inside politician and statesman rather than joining kind of the the, the public circus of it. But uh, a great loss to the country to lose uh, General Colin Powell. Yeah, no doubt. Look, I, I think he he was a statesman in, in really every sense of the word. He was the chair of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. He was a national security advisor. He was led our efforts in the Persian Gulf War, uh, or many of the efforts, uh, along with General Schwarzkopf. He was the first uh, black secretary of state. So he was in, in every way, shape, or form a, a barrier breaker. Um, yeah. And just really sad and tragic news to to hear uh, Monday morning uh, of his passing. You know, Murphy, I remember in 2008, uh, I think it was actually right around this time. It may have actually been uh, this time, uh, uh, actual this day uh, in 2008 uh, on Meet the Press on a Sunday morning uh, where Colin Powell, we had heard was going to make an endorsement and we were hoping it was going to be Barack Obama. Uh, and he, he did endorse Barack Obama. He had great respect for, for Senator McCain, and it, and it wasn't about Senator McCain. It was much, much more about the Republican Party, kind of apropos to what we've talked about here this morning. Um, but I, I do remember that being one of those things where, you know, I, I felt pretty confident about where we were in the election. But, boy, uh, I felt even better after watching somebody as uh, as acclaimed as as he had been on both the domestic and the international stage. Obviously, uh, a blot on the career a bit in the the Iraq testimony, but but a real barrier breaker uh, in our country, uh, and and somebody that we're sad to see, uh, sad to have lost, and and our thoughts certainly are with uh, family and friends uh, of the late General Colin Powell. Absolutely, I was with John McCain. We were alone in McCain's condo in Phoenix when Colin Powell called him, and I wrote about that. Uh, but to read it, you're going to have to go to the newsletter because we're out of time. Hexontap.bulletin.com, and I'll talk about what what that call was like and what McCain said afterward. Uh, until next week, thank you for joining us, Hackaroos. We appreciate it, and we will be back soon with some combination of us next week to take a look at the final stretch in Virginia, the battle in the House, and anything else that's happening in politics. Robert, I'll see you soon. Murphy, that was fun, and, and for all our listeners, we promise somebody will explain to our younger listeners what a landline is next week. <laughs> it's this thing you dial. All righty. Thank you, pal. Talk to you soon. Talk soon.